Let's pray and jump into Revelation. Father God, um, thank you for another Tuesday, uh, for another chance to dig into this special book, uh, to get a glimpse at your grand plan and grand design. Um, what we're going to be talking about today is pretty awe-inspiring, so I appreciate the thunderstorm in the background uh, as ambiance to what we are going to discuss. God, thank you for this opportunity, and I just um, I just want to pray that you can help each one of us sort of set aside uh, whatever's going on, whatever circumstance or distractions we have, and just kind of come together today um, in humility and in recognition of your awesome power um, and your great love, and that we can just worship you through this study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, I'm going to be really ambitious tonight and see if we can get through three chapters. We'll see if that happens, um, but to kind of catch up where we're at, um, we have entered into a seven-year period of future uh, promise and prophecy uh, that is often referred to as the tribulation. Uh, it's also called Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah, or all throughout the Old Testament in the uh, major and minor prophets as the day of the Lord. Um, in Daniel, as we talked about last week, it's known as the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven-year period of that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And this is what we are talking about. And it's all in relation to that scroll. And Jesus has started opening the scroll. And last week, in chapters 6 and 7, in chapter 6 in particular, we started to see what happens as Jesus opens those wax seals and those of the scroll. And as he opens the seals, judgments are pouring down on the earth. And we saw the first six, starting with the first four. They were the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which I think is a pretty grand overview of at least a portion of the tribulation period. Um, some think that leads us to the first three and a half years, uh, and then it sort of takes off from there, and the great tribulation is the last three and a half years. Some think it may be an overview of the whole tribulation as uh, a period in general but it starts off with the false messiah showing up on the white horse, then on the red horse, um, a rider that represents war, a black horse uh, that represents famine, and then a pale horse and rider that represents death with hell and Hades following behind him. And so you see this false peace, this false messiah, this false Christ come in and usher in a period of peace, and it fails, war breaks out, and from war, famine and death, uh, and sickness. So that's sort of where we were last week. But we left off there is still one seal to be opened. So before I get into that, I want to read the first verse of chapter 8 to kind of get you ready for what we're going to deal with tonight. It says this, When he opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So throughout this whole experience, we've seen visions of heaven. Um, we've dived into visions of heaven from the Old Testament, like Ezekiel coming to the throne room of God, 
uh, and what it was like when John entered heaven in the book of Revelation as he enters the throne room of God and there's angels and there's worship and they are constantly singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But as this seal gets opened, there is silence in heaven for a measurable amount of time. In an eternal place, there is a measurement of time of silence because of the awe of what is about to go down. The reason I bring that up is because as we move through, you will see seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet contains seven bowl judgments. So there are several judgments to come, but they are all contained within the seventh seal. All of the judgments we read now come from the opening of the seventh seal. The seventh seal is what causes those judgments to take place because that's what it is. So all of this that we read and all of the devastation um, is the seventh seal being opened. So this is the sort of awe as they see what's coming and the scroll gets opened and they know what's about to happen. It shuts everybody up. So that's a big deal, and I don't want to skip over it without recognizing the reverence we should have. Uh, they shut up in heaven for a measurable period of time before the rest of this gets explained. So I think we should sort of take, take that in as we're about to explore what this seal contains. So verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So this, to me, again, points us right back to the book of Joshua. As they are told, as they are conquering Jericho, God tells Joshua to walk around the city for seven days. But on the seventh day, walk around the city seven times with the priests carrying trumpets. And when they blow the trumpets and shout, the walls will come crashing down and the city will be utterly devastated. And so this is a foreshadowing of what the seven trumpet judgments are. Though seven trumpets in Joshua were completely devastating to Jericho, this is completely devastating to the whole earth. So seven angels who stand before God with trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints, the golden altar, which was before the throne. So this kind of points us back to what we had talked about in the tabernacle being a presentation, an earthly representation of what the throne room of heaven looked like. The altar of incense stood just before the veil of the Holy of Holies in front of what would be the Ark of the Covenant where the mercy seat is, which would represent God's throne. So here in heaven, you're seeing an altar of where the prayers are going up, an altar of incense before the throne of God in heaven. However, there's no veil because there's no longer separation from God. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascending before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. There was noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And so again, 
the altar of incense was lit from the altar that was in heaven, just like the brazen altar that existed outside of the holy place in the tabernacle in the courtyard. And they would light the temp the incense with the coals that had the blood sprinkled on it or dripping from the sacrifice so that it would make the prayers clean and they could go up to heaven. So that same representation exists in the throne room of God. And here the trumpets are ready. And so now we're going to get into the trumpet judgments. The first trumpet. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. So the first judgment is looking, it's taking out the vegetation of the earth, but it's doing it with hail of fire that turns things to blood. This should seem a little bit familiar in terms of the Exodus. One of the things that's very interesting about each of the trumpet judgments is they sort of they have a correlation to the plagues or a portion of what happened in Egypt. So we get a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment when God basically wipes out the sinners and the people that have not yet turned to him and refused to bend the knee to him, just like Pharaoh refused to and hardened his heart against God. And so they see these correlation to the plagues in Egypt. And so in Exodus Chapter 9, the seventh plague is hail, and it destroys the crops in Egypt. This is also mentioned in Joel chapter 2. Um, chapter 2, verse 1, really talks, mentions that it's about the day of the Lord, this time period that we're talking about. And you see pillars of smoke and fire in verse 30. So a lot of these pictures that some of the minor prophets had seen are now getting more detail. And so this pillar of smoke and fire could easily be represented by the fiery hail or some of the other judgments that are coming um, in form of cosmic disaster. And so these pictures were sort of seen. In Ezekiel 38, you also see after the invasion of Gog and Magog into Israel, um, there is a judgment of hail raining down. So there are some commentators who would say that this judgment comes after the invasion of Gog and Magog. Um, there's different opinions on that in the timeline of Gog and Magog. Um, Gog and Magog are also mentioned at the end of Revelation after the Millennial Kingdom. Um, but it's a different version. We'll get into that when we get into Revelation like 2021. Um, but there are some who believe that the Gog and Magog invasion actually happens before the tribulation period and is maybe what kicks kicks it off or sets the world into a position where they would be willing to accept a false Christ and a false Messiah and a peacemaker because of the type of war that this invasion would be. So Ezekiel 38 is very interesting in that. But there is some sort of parallels between the judgment on Gog and Magog and this fire of this hail fire, but I think the most interesting parallel exists within Exodus. So that's the first trumpet. The second trumpet, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So this is likely a comet, an asteroid, some sort of meteor, something cosmic coming in, 
hitting the earth in the sort of tsunamis and tidal waves and destruction of sea life could easily cause a red tide uh, because of all of the death and destruction in the ocean. So that could be what it's referring to or some sort of supernatural event. Um, but this also is a reference to um, Exodus chapter 7, uh, where the first plague is Mo Moses and Aaron turning the blood, the water of the Nile into blood, and the animals within the Nile also died. So you see the source of life, water, the seas have been struck by God in the second trumpet judgment. And now the third trumpet. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers, on the springs of the water, the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So this is also likely some sort of cosmic event um, with some sort of toxin in it that makes the water bitter. Wormwood is a poison um, that makes waters bitter. And there's a reference to it actually in Exodus after they cross the Red Sea uh, and have escaped the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 15, where they drink water, but they recognize that they can't drink the water because it's bitter. And then Moses puts a tree in the water and it purifies the water and they're able to drink. And so that could easily be a parallel of, you know, the Israelites had escaped this oppression. Um, but there's a foreshadowing of what's to come. They are saved from this right now um, as they have escaped their oppression. Um, so that's a possibility. And then the fourth trumpet. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So before we even get into the judgment, the, there's an angel proclaiming in heaven, Woe for each of the coming judgments. So what we've seen has already been devastating, but these angels are saying, This is nothing compared to what's about to happen. Uh, and the interesting thing is, at least for the next two judgments, the first four came from heaven. The next two right, come from the depths. Um, so there's a shift just in general of where they come. But the fourth judgment is darkness. A third of the stars, a third of the moon, and the sun was darkened. Now this is also brought up in Joel chapter 2, that in the day of the Lord the sun would be darkened and the moon would be turned to blood. And so if there was all of this sort of ash and just devastation from volcanic ash and things like that, the moon would turn the blood, the sun would be darkened. Um, but in Exodus chapter 10, the ninth plague was also darkness. The sun turned dark. So you see this in the, again, the parallel between the plagues in Egypt. Jesus also mentions this in the Olivet Discourse, um, where he's talking about end times with his disciples in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. So, whoa, let's get to the fifth trumpet. The fourth, or chapter nine, the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven 
to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. So the star fell from heaven um, is very much likely talking about Lucifer, who's referred to as a star in Isaiah chapter um, 14. It's interesting that the previous verse talks about the sun being a third darkened and a third of, and the moon being a third darkened and the stars, a third of them being darkened. Because Revelation chapter 12, as we, when we get there, you'll see the great dragon, who is Satan, swings his tail and brings a third of the angels of heaven fallen out of with him. And angels are also referred to as stars. Um, biblically as well. So just there's a correlation there. But Isaiah 14 specifically calls Lucifer a star that is fallen. But in Job, you see that even though Satan has fallen and he reigns on the earth instead of being in heaven, he still has access to the throne room of God. He still is able to get into heaven in Job chapter 1 and 2. So this is like the official you are kicked out forever moment. Right, he falls, and he's given the keys to Hades, and he opens it up, and out of it come these demon locusts. So let's kind of get a little bit of detail about them. They were commanded not to form the grass of the earth or any green thing, or so not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree. So they won't go after any vegetation, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So they won't attack believers or the 144,000. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. So they're going to, likely you're going to be like burning from the inside out like a, like a scorpion sting. But also, five months is the, t- is the time frame for a locust invasion. Um, so these might be physical, natural things as much as they are demon-powered. Don't know, but there's potential for that to be, because they're also described in Joel. And the book of Joel, um, again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, describes very similar creatures as to what we're about to be described um, here in Revelation. The shape of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. Again, the same as an actual locust invasion. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, who name is, in Hebrew, is Abaddon, or Apollyon, which is really a reference to destruction. One woe is past, but still two more woes are coming after these things. So, these demon 
like locusts are going to be able to attack men and women. And this is so devastating because the pain we're going to be is going to be so great that there will be suicide attempts, but they will fail. They will death will not be able to escape them. They will have to deal with this pain for five months. So you can sort of see this demon horde. Why that is the first woe, something that's different and worse than the previous four trumpet judgments. And then we get to the sixth trumpet. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So again, that brazen altar that you would see in the tabernacle, you see it now in heaven again. And the four horns were there for mercy. So if someone was after you, you could, or if you committed a sin, you could run to the tabernacle and grab onto a horn and cry for mercy, and a sacrifice would be made in your place so that you could be right with God. The horns were there for mercy. During the Day of Atonement, they would also sprinkle and put the blood from the sacrifice on the four horns of the altar, as well as the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies to represent the mercy from God. So the horns on the altar are mercy. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Because these angels are bound, they are fallen angels. So they are bound because angels who aren't fallen are not bound. They're given freedom. Um, so these are fallen angels. And they are bound, but now they are released. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, um, month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So, Again, you see that third. There is a third of the angels that fell from heaven. A third of the sky was darkened. A third of men will now be killed by these four angels. And in this judgment, that also sounds familiar to the final plague that hit Egypt. Pharaoh would not soften his heart, and the last plague was the first, the death of the firstborn and the angel of death being released. And this is four times worse. There are four angels <laughs> heading out to all of the earth to kill uh, a third of man. So, But again, you see that parallel between the exodus of Egypt and the plagues to the trumpet judgments in Revelation. So you see a foreshadowing of what's to come, but it is significantly worse for what is to come. Um, now the number of the army of horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads. With them, they do harm. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their works or their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality. So John sees an army of 200 million. And there is a significant debate on whether this is a physical army 
or a spiritual army of demons. I don't really know which side I fall on that, but there is an interesting point um, that when Mao Zedong was alive, he he made the famous claim that if there was some sort of world event, that China could man an army of 200 million um, and with a population of 1.4 billion. Uh, and later on in Revelation, you also see armies and leaders coming out of the east to fight. So it's it potentially could be a physical army, but it could also just be a spiritual army because the battle of Armageddon and the rest of that doesn't happen until the end of the Great Tribulation. So there is no real, I don't know what the timeline of the sixth judgment is. There's a lot of speculation, but there's no direct answer that you can find. So this could be related to the armies coming out of the east um, because there's significant population, especially in India and China, um, of armies that could come out of the east. Uh, but this also um, could be a spiritual representation. John is trying to explain something that he cannot understand. So if this is modern weaponry, imagine him trying to explain it, only seeing horses and bows and arrows and swords. Um, but it could also just be something spiritual like the locusts. But with that, the sixth trumpet has been blown. And just like the sixth seal where you got a break and some good news and some different uh, feel, uh, this is why I wanted to do chapter 10, because again, there's a break between the sixth and the seventh trumpet that give us a different taste in our mouth as we walk out of here, uh, because we've been talking about really devastating, horrible judgment and destruction, um, which is why there was silence in heaven for what was about to come. But this sort of puts it into perspective. Chapter 10. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. But before I even go into what's happening here, let's talk about this angel. So, who is this? There have been a lot of debate about who this is because the description sounds a lot like Jesus from chapter 1. So is it? It could be, I guess. I mean, his face is like a sun. There's a rainbow around him just like Jesus was sitting on the throne in chapter 4 and you saw the rainbow around him reminding you of the Noahic covenant. And his feet were like pillars of fire just like Jesus' feet were like the brass which represent judgment and the fire that happens on the brazen altar. So is this Jesus? But the biggest clue comes in the first verse. I saw still another mighty angel. And we've just talked about the angels holding the trumpets. And they are angels. They are not Jesus. They are angels. And the word another is the key word. It can be, it can come from one of two Greek words, and it gives us the understanding of who this is. So the Greek word alos means another of the same kind, and the Greek word, Greek word heteros means another of a different kind. So imagine, if you will, I have a pen that runs out of ink, and I say, can you give me another? And I say alos. You would know that I'm looking for a pen because I'm asking for another of the same kind. 
If I said, can you give me heteros? Can you give me another? You might say, he's looking for another writing utensil. You might hand me a pencil or a crayon or a marker or something that's related, like a heavenly being, uh, in this sense, but it's not the exact same. Well, the word here is alos, another of the same kind. So if we were just talking about the angels with the trumpets, and this is another of the same kind, then this has got to be an angel. So who is it? Well, most commentators who swing on that side of the fence say that this is probably Michael, because Michael's name means who is like God. So he might have a similar image to what you would expect of Jesus. So this is likely the archangel Michael with his, well, we'll see. He had a little book open in his hand. This is likely the scroll, the title deed to the earth. He's holding it now after it's been opened by Jesus. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice. As when a lion roars, he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Good timing, storm. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So this is the most intrigue that we get in the book of Revelation. There, there's no one knows what was said. And it's silly to even take a guess. John, in, as he's seeing this vision, is told, don't write this down. So we just have to deal with the mystery until it happens. We'll never know. But you see here Michael with his one foot on land, one foot on the sea, and one hand raised toward heaven with the scroll. This is him proclaiming wholeheartedly that God owns this. Satan may have usurped the earth from man in the Garden of Eden, but Jesus has claimed it back. And here it is. He's got his foot on the land and the water and his hands pointed towards the heavens. God owns it all, and Michael is proud to state that in this moment. And then he utters things that we'll never know what they say, which is interesting and intriguing to me, but also bugs me because I like to know things. But here, verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth, the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, to the prophets. So the angel is saying, there is no more delay. The mercy is coming because this is about to be over. And the victory is here because God is reclaiming his creation. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book or the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. How bold John is. Give me that book. 
And he said to me, take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach had become bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So we've taken this break from the judgments. And the angel is handed, well, he's proclaimed the victory of God and that this is about to be over because we're going to sound the last judgment. And then he hands the scroll to John and says, when you eat this, it's going to be sweet in your mouth, but bitter in your stomach. This is an extreme parallel to Ezekiel chapter 2 when he heads into the throne room of heaven and he's given a scroll to eat. And it was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And after he eats it, he's told, you again have to prophesy. So there's more. Even though the angel said, this is about to be over, there's still more story for you to tell. And you got to get back to it. So that's what's coming next. But in this moment, let's take a look at the scroll. It's bitter in his stomach. I think we can all acknowledge that what we have seen in the six seal judgments and now the seventh seal, which contains the seven trumpet and seven bowl judgments, which we have yet to see. But these trumpet judgments are bitter. It's, it's devastating. It is sweet in his mouth because he understands and the scroll contains within it the ultimate victory of God the ultimate redemption of the earth and God's people, the ultimate salvation and the complete restoration of God's kingdom. And that is sweet tasting. But you have to recognize the bitterness that it takes to get there. And so this does contain within it very good news and a different point of view than maybe the six judgments that we had talked about but it still holds reverence to the bitterness of what the earth has to go through for its redemption. But God is good because he is God. And so his plan is perfect, uh, and it is up to us to to worship that and trust that he knows what he's doing and that he has delayed what he has delayed to make sure as many people can enter the kingdom as possible. And even like we learned about in chapter 6 and 7, there will be a great multitude that you can't even count that gets saved within the tribulation period because God is still a missionary God who still wants to see people saved and reconciled with himself even amongst the judgments that have to come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your plan and your word. God, I thank you for the parallels that you draw within your own scriptures so that we can grasp what you're telling us about the future. It's so great to know that you have a plan and you want us to know you and your plan and your character in the process. And I pray that this night that we have learned more about you, that we can be more reverent about who you are and the great power you contain and also know 
that we can love you more because you still seek, even in the midst of chaos, to have people draw close to you and reconciled, no matter how much they want to turn the other direction. God, help us to spread your message and your word outside of these walls so that we can show you how much we love you by bringing as many with us to the kingdom as possible. In Jesus' name, amen.